Welcome to Skim This. This week, we got a major update in the case of WNBA star Brittany Griner, who's been found guilty by a Russian court. We'll bring you the latest on her situation and whether the White House can do anything to speed up her return home. Also on the show, if you've been seeing TikToks that are getting you a little freaked out about the monkeypox outbreak, we are here to set the record straight about what's actually going on and how you can keep yourself safe. And later, if you've ever felt ignored at the doctor's office, you're not alone. You will hear stories of women going to the emergency room or going to their doctor with symptoms that were not believed and having catastrophic effects. We're talking to experts about medical gaslighting and how you can be your own advocate in the exam room. And finally, we all know it's hot girl summer. So we're taking a deep dive on how women everywhere are changing the way we think about what's hot. It seems like the word has been reclaimed by people who feel hot. It just matters how you feel. We are here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, we have breaking news today in the case of Brittany Griner. The WNBA star was sentenced today in Russian court. And as expected, Griner was found guilty of an attempt to smuggle illegal narcotics into Russia. She's been sentenced to nine years in prison, which her attorneys plan to appeal. For a little context, in February, Russian officials arrested Griner at a Moscow airport on cannabis possession charges. Since then, authorities have extended Griner's detention four times. And here at home, calls have been mounting for the U.S. government to do something to bring Griner back. Even though she's been sentenced today, U.S. officials are still considering brokering a deal with the Kremlin to get her released, likely through some sort of prisoner exchange. Those details are still TBD, but for now, Griner will remain in Russia. We also got some other breaking news today from the Justice Department. In a press conference Thursday, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced federal charges against four Louisville, Kentucky current and former police officers who were involved in the deadly raid of Breonna Taylor's home in 2020. The DOJ had opened a probe into Taylor's death in April of last year. Here was Garland today. The Justice Department has charged four current and former Louisville Metro Police Department officers with federal crimes related to Ms. Taylor's death. Those alleged crimes include civil rights offenses, unlawful conspiracies, unconstitutional use of force, and obstruction offenses. Garland said the officers in question had falsified information to obtain a search warrant that led to the deadly raid, used excessive force during the raid, and later misled investigators who looked into Taylor's death. These are reportedly the first federal charges in response to the deadly raid of Taylor's home. And Garland said today the DOJ was committed to continue to fight for justice in this case. For our next headline, let's take a look at what's going on with monkeypox. 
The monkeypox outbreak continues to grow faster than many initially expected. Criticism has grown as well about the Biden administration's response. This week, as concerns rise about the rapid spread of monkeypox, New York, California, and Illinois all declared monkeypox a public health emergency. And the White House, facing backlash over its response so far, declared monkeypox a public health emergency on Thursday in order to direct funding and resources to fighting the virus. Earlier in the week, the White House also named two staffers as monkeypox response coordinators to lead the effort to combat spread. The two leads will be responsible not only for managing the outbreak, but also for ensuring equitable availability of tests, vaccinations, and treatments. The government response is kicking into high gear as the U.S. has the highest number of cases of any country. Over 6,600 monkeypox cases have been reported nationwide since May, and the vast majority of cases have been among men who have sex with men. But monkeypox is not a virus exclusive to the LGBTQ community, and virologists have predicted the disease could spread to other populations. So how can everyone stay safe? The main mode of transmission of monkeypox has been prolonged skin-to-skin -skin contact, which includes kissing, hugging, cuddling, and having sex. So according to experts, limit the number of sexual partners you have, don't have anonymous sex, and inspect your partners before sex whenever possible. It's also possible to get monkeypox through bedding and respiratory droplets, so the CDC also recommends not sharing eating utensils or cups with a person who has monkeypox, not touching bedding, towels, or clothing that belongs to someone who's ill, washing your hands often with soap and water, and using hand sanitizer. And we should also point out, crowded indoor parties and dance floors could also put you at risk. So experts say our old friends, masks, and social distancing are a good idea in places where there are high case counts. Now for some good-ish news. Monkeypox is way less transmissible than COVID-19. And we already have some vaccines and treatments available, especially for people in vulnerable groups. We'll leave a link to find out if you're eligible for the vaccine, which isn't widely available yet, in our show notes. All right, for our next headline, let's get to some political news a massive show of support for abortion rights and a conservative, traditionally red state. Kansas was the first state to have its residents vote on an abortion measure since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And on Tuesday, the results were pretty clear. Nearly 60% of voters in the state voted to preserve abortion protections, while about 40% wanted to remove them. This means abortion will remain legal in Kansas for up to 22 weeks of pregnancy but the ramifications of Tuesday's vote go beyond that. In November, Kentucky and Montana will also have anti-abortion referendums on the ballot, while voters in California and Vermont will decide whether their state constitutions should be amended to protect abortion rights. And considering analysts expected the Kansas vote to be a lot closer, Democrats and pro-abortion advocates are hoping that what happened in Kansas will happen again in those states. Also this week, Team Biden was similarly focused on abortion rights. On Wednesday, the president signed another executive order, this one aimed at helping people travel out of state to access abortion. 
And for our final headline, let's go abroad. We begin tonight with an Al-Qaeda leader and 9-11 mastermind dead, taken out by a CIA drone. Ayman al-Zwahiri, the leader of the terror group Al-Qaeda, is now dead. On Sunday local time, with the approval of President Biden, the CIA carried out a drone attack on al-Zwahiri's residence in Kabul, Afghanistan, while he was on the balcony. Al-Zwahiri was a co-founder of Al-Qaeda, and he first served as the deputy to Osama bin Laden during the 9-11 attacks and was deeply involved in planning them. American intelligence agencies tracked him to the city of Kabul earlier this year and spent months determining if it was actually him. According to reports, he was hiding in a safe house in a crowded part of the city. Officials say there were no civilian casualties in the drone strike, but the attack in Kabul is raising questions about the Taliban. Quick skim here, the US pulled out of Afghanistan almost a year ago, and the Taliban took back control of the government. And when the US pulled out, it was with the understanding that the Taliban wouldn't let terror groups operate there. But one of the most wanted terrorists in the world was found in the capital of Afghanistan. So experts say the Taliban probably knew he was there and were okay with it. Plus, the house al-Swahiri was staying in reportedly happened to be owned by an aide to a Taliban senior leader. We should also point out, this isn't the first promise the Taliban seems to have broken since the US left and allowed them to take over a year ago. They've walked back women being able to go to school, hold jobs, or travel, despite committing to uphold women's rights. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is on a congressional trip through Asia, and one pit stop in particular has gotten a lot of attention. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi landing in Taiwan Tuesday a display of defiance. Up until now, there was lots of speculation about whether it would happen, whether it wouldn't happen. In that high-stakes visit that did infuriate Beijing. That's right, Pelosi touched down in Taiwan, making her the first Speaker of the House to head to the island since 1997. We'll explain why her summer travel itinerary is making headlines, and what went down, all in 60 seconds. Over the past few days, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been jet-setting around Asia, including to Singapore, South Korea, Japan, and Malaysia. According to her office, while she's been abroad, she's been holding high-level meetings over things like COVID, the climate crisis, and trade. That's all pretty standard stuff for a congressional trip. But one not-so-standard thing on her itinerary was a visit to Taiwan, where she landed on Tuesday. That visit wasn't even on her official itinerary, but it's definitely set off international alarm bells. Here's why. As a reminder, Taiwan is a self-ruled island off the coast of China, with a population of about 23 million. China claims Taiwan as its own territory, and China's even said it will go as far as using military force to gain control of the island. So after rumors started swirling that the speaker was planning a trip to Taiwan, the Chinese government warned there would be serious consequences if she went. Because a visit from the third most senior US official in support of Taiwan would be bad for optics. And Chinese leadership is all about the optics. 
Still, despite threats from China and even warnings from President Biden, Pelosi went to Taiwan and in a major show of support, told the Taiwanese people that the U.S. stands with them. And that was kind of a big deal, considering the U.S. tends to play its feelings on Taiwan close to the vest. In fact, we have a cleverly named policy literally called strategic ambiguity, where we say we don't support Taiwanese independence, but that we'd also defend Taiwan if China invaded. China's warned the U.S. to stay out of its drama with Taiwan. So after this visit, it's safe to say China's mad now. Chinese warplanes have already been sent into Taiwanese airspace, and officials say the country will be doing military exercises in the South China Sea until Saturday. But so far, those drills seem to be a show of force, not a sign of an imminent invasion. Basically, the TLDR is this. Even though China likely won't invade Taiwan in the next few days, tensions are definitely rising, and Pelosi's trip put a serious spotlight on an escalating crisis in the region. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. I contracted what appeared to be pneumonia. It wasn't getting any better. So I went to the hospital. At some point in time, a doctor that I had not worked with at all, he was going through my chart and he's like, this is just HIV. And I was aghast. And I was like, it can't possibly be. He's like, well, what's your lifestyle like? You probably lead one that leads you to high risk factors. When the test results came in, he didn't look me in the eye. He's like, yep, not HIV. Still don't know what it is. It was on the 68th blood test that they found what I had. It was a respiratory infection called valley fever. I went to the doctors once after a car accident and was told that I could possibly have a slight case of TBI and a sleep apnea issue. In the doctor's office, like, it felt very hectic. I called the doctor's office, was like, oh, yeah, you're coming in for something about your legs? And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? My summer before my sophomore year of college, I started experiencing some brain fog and dizziness. And I went to my doctor who referred me to a neurologist. And he asked me a lot of questions that felt very leading, ultimately implying that my symptoms were from illicit drug use, which was not something I was participating in. I actually left and called my mom crying from the parking lot thinking that maybe I was just going crazy. Several months later, I got a call that they had reevaluated my blood work and that it looked like I might have Lyme's disease. And when I went for a retesting, my Lyme's levels were off the charts. Those are the voices of Skim HQers Allison, Sydney, and Pam, describing what has become an all-too-common experience when you go to the doctor's office. Confusion, frustration, shame. Those experiences can also be described as medical gaslighting. Medical gaslighting means that you're not believed or your symptoms are belittled or not taken seriously. That's Dr. Jennifer Merez, a professor of cardiology and the chief diversity and inclusion officer at Northwell Health. She told us, simply put, 
Medical gaslighting is when patients encounter bias in the healthcare system, which could jeopardize them getting the care or treatment they need. That bias has existed for decades, and it's become systemic. Because when you go back in time, especially through the last century of medicine, most funding, time, and attention went into the study of diseases that primarily affected white cisgender men, and how men are affected by diseases that, in reality, affect all people. And that has created gaps in how medical providers understand diseases today. For the past hundred years, we have based treatment strategies or description of symptoms based on the male model. And we now know that, as one of my colleagues said, women are not small men. And as we have opened up research into studying the sex and gender differences, we have learned that, for example, in heart disease, that women can have a spectrum of symptoms. And so what has happened, because our algorithms and our training for the medical community has been focused on one model, when women present with different symptoms, we automatically think of the algorithms. And if it doesn't fit into the algorithms, we say that, you know, this cannot be. We rule out that diagnosis. And according to Dr. Karen Spencer, a professor of health and behavioral sciences at the University of Colorado, Denver, when you combine those institutional knowledge gaps with the stress of the current healthcare landscape, you get an epidemic of medical gaslighting. Just like the rest of us, doctors are more likely to make biased decisions when they're cognitively stressed or uncertain. So our healthcare system has a lot of time and financial constraints to see a lot of patients in short times. And so uncertainty or decision-making under pressure can also lead to things getting missed or misunderstood. And then women and people of color are especially vulnerable to that. And then there's just this long history also of this happening. We used to say that women had hysteria and that that was tied to a problem with their uterus. So, you know, we have these ways of talking about this that are not exactly new, but there's something we're hearing about more recently. As we just heard, medical gaslighting is something that's disproportionately experienced by women and people of color. It's also something that affects the LGBTQ community and geriatric patients. Let's get technical for a second and dig into some statistics that reveal how discrimination can show up in the doctor's office. One study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that on average, white Americans spend 80 minutes waiting for medical care, while black Americans spend 99 minutes and Hispanics 105 minutes, all waiting for the same care. Another 2014 report by the advocacy group Lambda Legal found more than half of lesbian, gay, or bisexual survey respondents and 70% of transgender people had experienced discrimination while seeking healthcare. And finally, according to research from the medical journal Health Affairs, Black patients are over 2.5 times more likely to have at least one negative descriptor in their medical history and physical notes which can affect the treatment they receive from doctors. So between long existing bias, certain health issues being underfunded and under-researched, and pressure on the healthcare system, medical gaslighting has become a serious phenomenon. And according to Dr. Merez, it's crucial we start paying attention because this can lead to negative health outcomes for already marginalized groups. 
Not to mention, it creates mental and emotional stress for patients. I always say your health is your most important asset, right? And so when there is gaslighting, it leads to misdiagnoses. You have a misdiagnosis, under recognition of symptoms, leads to undertreatment, and ultimately can have catastrophic effects. If you were to look at the example of women and heart disease, right? You will hear stories of women going to the emergency room or going to their doctor with symptoms that were not believed to be related to heart disease and having catastrophic effects. And you think of people of color, black African-American women, especially in with maternal health, not being believed can lead to death. So now that we know what medical gaslighting is and how it's permeated our healthcare system, how can we advocate for ourselves, especially in those deeply frustrating moments? First, it's important to recognize the symptoms of medical gaslighting. Here's what our expert said to look out for. I think one thing is if your questions aren't getting answered or if they're getting rerouted or you have pain or some kind of pain like that and you end up getting a lecture about your weight. I think that's a source of concern. Gaslighting starts with not being listened to. You're starting to tell your story and your physician, your medical team cuts you off. So lack of engaged listening, very short answers or interruptions and sort of making you feel a little bit like you're starting to doubt yourself. The next step is to go prepared to your medical appointments. Take some time to blog or prepare what has been happening to you. So I always say, you don't show up to your accountant to prepare your taxes without receipts, without sort of a history or catalog of what has happened over the past year. You should do the same thing as a patient. Because remember that doctor-patient relationship is really a partnership. If you feel you're not being heard, really speaking up and saying, wait a minute, let's hit the pause button here because you're not listening to me, you're not hearing me. Interrupting the process can have a positive effect. And ultimately, I feel that if you cannot connect with your doctor, your medical team, speaking to friends and family to find referrals to really find someone that will listen to you, that you can build that partnership, is definitely critical. You can also bring friends or family with you to those appointments for a second set of eyes and ears. And to make the most out of a short visit, the New York Times recommends focusing on getting answers to three key questions. One, what is the professional's best guess as to what's happening to you? Two, how will they diagnose or rule out different possibilities? And three, what are your treatment options? We should also say, we know how frustrating this process can be. And our experts acknowledge that this shouldn't be an issue that falls on patients to solve. Many healthcare professionals are also working to weed out bias in the system. Medical schools and providers have started to include classes and trainings on effective communications with patients and have also focused on diversifying the industry at large, so more women and people of color are diagnosing and treating patients. And on a national level, there's been a renewed focus on funding studies and research into diseases that affect marginalized groups. Our experts are hopeful that these changes and the attention on this issue will lead to better patient experiences going forward. 
you know, I started studying this in the 90s and people then didn't really have a sense of what I was talking about. I would explain, this is what I'm working on. And people didn't have this broad understanding of the idea that there's inequality coming from within the healthcare system. And now that's changed radically. And I think that's really fantastic because the more awareness there is, the more opportunity there is for repairing these things. Everyone knows it's hot girl summer, and hot girl summer is whatever you want it to be. But for those of us who grew up in the early 2000s, that's hot. That's hot. This is hot. That's hot. That's hot. This is really hot. The word hot has definitely evolved since then. So we decided to call up an expert to learn more about how this three letter word took on so much meaning in our culture. I'm Dania Sowie. I am currently a writer at New York Magazine, formerly the New York Times. Isawi did a deep dive on how hot has changed over the years, from Paris Hilton to Megan the Stallion. Nowadays, hot isn't about what you wear, and it's not even about what other people think of you. Isawi found that the new age of hot is rooted in being yourself. It just means like the way you carry yourself, being authentic to who you are. It seems like the word has been reclaimed by people who feel hot. It just matters how you feel. On TikTok, you've probably seen someone doing hot girl sh**, aka doing whatever they want. I can't talk right now. I'm doing hot girl sh**. This is how hot girls get rid of their Christmas tree. We're doing hot girl sh** over here. The number you are dialing is currently doing hot girl sh**. Please hang up and delete this number. This trend shows people that taking care of yourself, doing your homework or your regular work, or just relaxing all count as being hot. It's about personal joy and confidence. One of the sources I talked to was like, I think tan lines are hot. Sugar-free gummy snacks are hot. The way people hold their coffee is hot. It's these really small, like, idiosyncrasies. For some people, being hot means like taking care of their mental health. For another one of my sources, being hot was graduating from law school. Like she told me that was the hottest she'd ever felt. So where did this hotness revolution start? The sociolinguists I talked to really were like, it's black women. Black women have been using the word hot in their communities like this for a very long time. And then it got really popularized by Megan Thee Stallion, I think like last summer. Other communities latched onto the word and it caught like wildfire. For me personally, I'm a woman of color and I grew up in a predominantly white community. And so growing up, I never really saw myself as somebody that was necessarily allowed to be hot. And so reclaiming the word hot has given me a place to put the confidence I have within me. It matters less how much I fit in with the community around me. It matters more so how I feel internally. Language changes. It always is going to change. And I think in this instance, it's changing for the better. Like, why not let people be hot who feel hot? If you're looking for one of the most popular examples of the new meaning of hot, meet the Hot Girl Walk, created by 
I am Mia Lind. My username is exactly like the other girls, if that's what you're familiar with. I am most known on TikTok for starting the Hot Girl Walk. The Hot Girl Walk is her viral meditative walk based all around empowerment and being hot in the new sense of the word. When I started the Hot Girl Walk, I remember thinking to myself, you're always striving for what society is saying is the ideal picture of what hot is. And then I realized, I was like, you know what? Like, I'm already hot. I'm graduating USC with honors. That is so hot. And if that's not hot, then I don't know what is. The point of the hawker walk isn't to become a hot girl. You're already hot. But the walk is just going to help you channel that in yourself, help you bring it out. And ideally, it's that confidence that comes out next. So how do you do a hot girl walk? Get ready, lace up those shoes, because Mia's going to walk us through it. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know, hot girl walk doesn't really sound like my thing. I'm not a hot girl. My first step is to get up, look at a mirror. If there's somebody there looking back at you, you're a hot girl. It's time to go on your hot girl walk. You're going to get your shoes, tie your laces, get comfortable. I bring a bottle of water, put on your sunscreen. Next, you're going to think to yourself, okay, I'm going to need a playlist. I'm going to need a podcast. Obviously, you can plug in your headphones and you can turn on your skin podcast. If not, I do Hawker Walk Silent a lot of the time. If you're really brave, you can do that too. I usually try to find just one path that you know is safe and then just walk there and back. There's only one rule for the hot girl walk, and it's you're only allowed to think of three things. The first is things you're grateful for. Just take note of all of those really amazing things in your life that you have. Next, think of some things that you're really proud of that you did yesterday, that you did in the past week, that you did in the past month, in the past year, and give yourself the proper applause for that. Now let's think about the future. What are we doing next? Is there some project at work that you've been really nervous about that you want to focus on and how you're going to achieve them? Lastly, take this time to be obnoxious and to love yourself to the maximum capacity that you can. This is your time to be loving yourself, to be positive. This is your time to yourself. You have all day to be negative. Don't let this hour and a half, hour, 30 minutes be that time. And the last step of the Hawker Walk, which I think is the most important, is continuing the energy that you created on your Hawker Walk. I always say that you carry it with you through your whole day. You can't help but bring that positivity everywhere else. So that's how you go on a hot girl walk. Hopefully you feel hot and amazing and proud of yourself that you did what may have seemed like a really daunting task. And I hope you enjoyed it. Well, skim this listeners, or should I say hotties? I've got a walk to take and I think so do you. Thanks for listening to skim this. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr. 
along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway. And the Skims head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us. <laughs>